This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Tuesday, June 21st, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Two very different hearings took place on two subjects, each of which exposed the worst of America. The murder of 19 fourth graders and their two teachers is heart-wrenching. The perpetuation of an attack on the Capitol and democracy is jaw-dropping, but also, at times, proved to be poignant. The last witness of the hearing first. She is Wandrea Shea Moss, a civil servant in Georgia who loved helping people exercise their rights as voters. Then she and her elderly mother were targeted by Rudy Giuliani and many of the coterie of Trump miscreants who concocted preposterous fictions to advance their cause of the big lie. And the big lie had real costs. Here's Moss having been asked by Representative Adam Schiff to recount the cost of Trump's advisors irresponsibly putting her name into the ether and the consciousness of his most ardent supporters. This turned my life upside down. Um, I no longer give out my business card. I don't transfer calls. I um, don't want anyone knowing my name. I don't want to go anywhere with my mom because she might yell my name out over the grocery aisle or something. I don't go to the grocery store at all. I haven't been anywhere um, at all. I've gained about 60 pounds. I just don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess everything that I do. Um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way. In every way. All because of lies. For me doing my job. When Shay Moss and Ruby Freeman, her mother, were in the news, I experienced the conundrum of not wanting to amplify the smear, but also wanting you in the audience to know how far these election deniers would go. So now... I feel a little bit better that I talked about it when many others wouldn't, but I just couldn't believe the depths to which even Rudy Giuliani would sink. Now I hope more Americans know about this than they did before. Down in Texas, Americans mostly did know how screwed up the response to the shooting at Robb Elementary School was, but the specifics and the details of the failure were worse than we'd imagined. Steve McCraw, director of the Texas Department of Public Safety, called the Uvalde police chief's response an abject failure, and then he got into the specific reasons why. Chief Arandondo waited for keys, even though it was likely that the classroom doors weren't even locked. He waited for rifles, even though a pistol was the appropriate firearm to use. There was so much attention paid to locked doors, 
up until this hearing. And it was all beside the point, McGraw said. Whether the door was locked or unlocked, just look at this picture of the door. Right next to it is a glass window, unprotected, easily shot out, and the door could have been opened from the inside in a series of actions that would have taken less than five seconds. McGraw talked about police walkie-talkies. The only portable radios that worked in that West Building were Border Patrols. Okay, and they're the only ones that worked. All right, so we've got a police school officer whose radio will not work inside the school. That's correct. Yes, sir. McGraw was thorough. I worried to some degree almost too thorough. Law enforcement had so many failures that the after-action litany of these failures will probably run quite thick. And then we won't even get to the issue of the availability of the AR-15 style rifle the shooter used. And it was clear that many on the committee would rather not get to the issue of guns. State Senator Bob Hall among them. And it doesn't take a gun. This man had enough time to do it with his hands or a baseball bat. And so it's not the gun, it's the person. Debatable. And if this were a mass strangling, I'd say the cops would have entered the room a little sooner. The tenor of the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol was one of tight explanation, unencumbered by anyone who would try to steal focus or serve to confuse the narrative. The Texas committee is different. It's made up of many more Republicans than Democrats, and a main fix that's obvious in this case, gun control, will likely not be seriously considered. I don't know which composition or philosophy of committees is better. I suspect the January 6th committee was the best you could want coming out of D.C., and the Texas committee is the best you could hope for out of Texas, given the politics therein. The last point of consideration was uttered by Roland Gutierrez, who represents Uvalde in the state Senate. You all are fixers in this room. You fix things. That's why we do this. I think even Gutierrez would acknowledge that was more voicing an aspiration than a description. Gutierrez was specifically left off the committee by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who appointed its members. And I suspect it may be less the case that these eight Republicans and three Democrats are in it for fixes than it is the case that the fix is in. On the show today, I spiel about heat stress, deaths, and racial disparities. But first, June, pride, rainbows, flags. And so Ted Kay, editor emeritus of The Raven, an official of the North American Vexillological Association, is here for a vexillology corner that really runs the spectrum. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Can you feel the pride all around you? I know I can, and not just from, I mean, I live in New York City, we have one of the biggest parades, but in every Target, 
I hear they've overstocked their shelves. They got supply chain issues, but not when it comes to rainbow flags and pride accessories. Pride is everywhere. The flag of pride is, of course, the rainbow. There are other flags associated with pride. And since we have a flag expert at our Not our beck and call, but Ted K comes by to honor our requests every so often. I wanted to talk about the rainbow flag and pride. Ted K is the uh, editor emeritus of Raven, which is the Journal of Vexillology and secretary of the North American Vexillological Association, the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag. Hello, Ted. Welcome back to The Gist. Hey, thanks for having me back, Mike. So let's talk about the rainbow flag. Is it anything other than just a rectangular representation of the rainbow? Well, let me tell you the story of how it came about. It was Great. born in San Francisco. Uh, in 1978, the Gay Freedom Day parade organizers heard a call from one of their leaders for a timeless symbol to represent their movement. They wanted something and they thought about the Olympic rings as also something timeless that would come back every four years. They wanted something that would come back every parade. And Hmm. one of the crew there, activist Gilbert Baker, proposed using the rainbow as a symbol of total inclusion. The rainbow has all the colors in it that a rainbow flag would represent all people. And the group of volunteers there imported 1,000 yards of fabric from China, white fabric. They hand dyed it and stitched two huge flags. The flags were 40 feet by 70 feet large, huge flags. And those were carried in the Gay Freedom Day Parade in 1978. That sparked the idea of rainbow representing the pride movement. And by 1979, Paramount Flag Company, a local flag company with a long heritage in San Francisco and a retail store on Polk Street, one of the main gay streets in San Francisco, started selling rainbow flags, some out of their inventory, then they started making them up. And they made a, uh, a production decision to make rainbow flags that had six stripes in them. Yeah, I did notice this. <laughs> yeah, the, the reason, there are a couple of reasons. One, they wanted to use standard flag colors, standard flag fabric that came from the mills, and right. uh, Gilbert's idea of turquoise and hot pink just didn't, didn't, uh, w- wasn't available. Uh, but also six rather than seven was a more economical use of the fabric. And then there was also a goal to hang them from the, the lampposts on Market Street. And there are crossbars and they wanted to divide the flag in half and hang it. And seven stripes you couldn't divide, but you could divide six stripes. Mm-hmm. So... They settled on the six-stripe version, red on top. And by 1982, rainbow flags were the official logo of the parade, and they were widely accepted around the world as a symbol of gay pride. It's very seldom that a, that a grassroots effort like that would result in widespread adoption by the group that it represents so quickly. And I guess it was Indigo that took the hit, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) It's always Indigo. Now, speaking of widespread adoption, I was looking at my iPhone and they have the flags of all the countries and a couple, Antarctica gets its own flag, the UN gets its flag, but there is the pride flag, one of the very few non-nation flags that is represented, even uh, the transgender flag, which is a newer, uh, um, a newer 
addition to the flag mix also is represented in emoji. That's right. In fact, there are scores of different flags representing different aspects of uh, people's orientation. It's ironic because the rainbow flag, its goal and its meaning is to include everyone. So for some group to say, oh, I'm not included in that flag. Well, actually, everyone's included in that flag. And the idea of creating a flag for each group, it kind of looks like schisms to it. But it's actually very interesting for flag scholars to be looking at this huge number of flags that's, that's uh, e- emerged in the last 20 years. Well, I suppose that if you were to take the analogy, most of the flags we think about are national flags or state flags, but nations want to, say, suppress breakaway movements. And even if they want to acknowledge provinces or states within them, they are subordinate. Whereas the gay rights movement doesn't actually have that goal. So you could see that the makers of the uh, pride flag, the rainbow flag meant to be all inclusive, would say, well, if there's a transgender flag, uh, yes and, rather than, oh, we already got you covered. Yeah, and in fact, I mean, you could make an argument that the rainbow flag is the overall arching flag. And then each of these represents, say, provinces within the the nation of pride. So flags, as you know, is the author of Good Flag, Bad Flag. They want to say different things and they often have symbols and you like uh, iconography that's that, that a child can trace. Certainly a tr- child can take out a box of Crayolas and draw this. Do, do you think this works for what the flag is trying to communicate and works within the greater understanding of flags, the rainbow flag? Oh, absolutely. Um, One of the principles of a good flag, bad flag is simplicity. In fact, it's the most important principle. And the way I summarized it was that a flag should be so simple that a child can draw it from memory. Now that's not a, the goal isn't enfranchisement of children. It's that if the flag is so simple that a child can draw it from memory, it's going to be a successful, simple flag. And as long as a child can remember Roy G. We have to leave out indigo. (laughs) As long as a child can remember it or even sort of figure it out, a rainbow flag is very easy to draw. You know, it's a rectangle. The the stripes are are evenly spaced. Uh, They can count to six and put the colors in. And of course, those colors are going to be available to any kid with a set of crayons. Yeah. And it's also a symbol that can, or a color pattern that can easily be applied to any number of things. And a lot of the people who are observing uh, the gay rights movement and Pride Month are saying, my God, the commercialization has gotten to almost a tipping point. But it just shows that you can th- throw the uh, rainbow on any kind of object. It immediately scans as a symbol of gay pride. But maybe it doesn't have the aspect of some other flags of, you know, inappropriately putting a flag on a bikini, let's say. Not that American manufacturers are loath to do that. But you'll often get some pushback among a certain kind of patriot who doesn't like their flag appropriated as a bedsheet. Whereas I don't see that going on as much with the rainbow flag, probably because of the properties of the flag itself. Yeah, I think you can look at it at two levels. One is whether the flag itself gets put on things or whether the design elements of the flag are incorporated into those things. Uh, Abby Hoffman wearing a flag shirt is different from something, you know, a political campaign that uses white 
stars on a blue field and red and white stripes, but not necessarily constructing a flag. The beauty and the magic of the rainbow flag is it's just six colors. And as long as those six colors are placed in some kind of sequence, it doesn't have to be a rectangle with stripes to invoke those, the, the symbolism that the flag represents. Um, you know, I don't see a lot of uh, sense that, that, you know, that you were, you were talking about that, that, oh, there's some kind of desecration of the flag if it's put on a t-shirt. Right. Um, and, and I think that's because the American flag arguably is the centerpiece of our civil religion. You, you actually can't desecrate something unless it is sacred. The sacredness of the American flag is wrapped up in the American civil re religion. And I don't think the rainbow flag has gotten that kind of embrace by people. But I want to use the word embrace. The, the commercialization that some people might see of, of the rainbow flag, I see is the world embracing that symbol as a, representing that group of people. And by using that symbolism, whether uh, uh, flying the rainbow flag or putting, putting the rainbow colors in some kind of advertisement, I think is a positive thing. There is a, a newer version of the rainbow flag, which has as a chevron elements of the transgender flag and also a brown stripe and a black stripe. In use, has this replaced the classic six-stripe rainbow flag? I, I don't think so, but uh, certainly many people are flying that. Uh, again, it's ironic to have a black and a brown stripe on a rainbow flag that already represents everybody. Yeah. I mean, there are no orange colored people or green colored people. Why have extra bands? Design-wise, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Politics-wise, within the community, I understand why it emerged. But um, the, I think you make a very good point that all of these variants are actually variants of the pride flag. I mean, the rainbow flag is the grandfather of all these flags, and it's spawning this huge family tree of flags that represent different groups. And I think it's very interesting to watch, and it certainly makes those parades more colorful. Are any nation flags or prominent state or province flags as colorful? Six different colors? Is that a record? Uh, no, it's not, not a record at all. And in fact, the rainbow flag is, has been used before the gay pride movement. Um, uh, Cusco, Peru has used the rainbow flag. There was a, uh, uh, a Masonic group, uh, a girls affiliate of the Masonic order called the rainbow girls that used rainbow flags. In fact, when Paramount Flag Company first started selling rainbow flags in San Francisco in 78, 79, it was using up an inventory of Rainbow Girls flags that it had hanging around <laughs> that nobody had bought. And so a wide variety of rainbow flags emerged before that six-stripe version uh, was uh, settled on. But uh, yes, from a, from a country flag design standpoint, uh, if you ignore shields and coats of arms or parrots that have a different color eye in them, uh, most national flags don't go as far as six colors, but a great recent exception is the flag of South Africa, adopted in 1994, and it combines the colonial colors of Great Britain and the Dutch of red, white, and blue with the African national 
Congress colors of yellow, black, and green. And so the South African flag has all six colors. And it's from a flag design standpoint, one might say, well, that's a lot of colors. But from a meaning standpoint and a successful embrace of it by the public, it's a very successful flag. The flag we're talking about, the pride flag, the gay rights flag, it's simple, it's replicable. People see it, they immediately associate it with what it's meant to be associated with. So that is the proof of uh, the pudding being in the taste, as it were. But sometimes people get very excited about flags uh, because it reminds them of their homeland. But that doesn't mean the flag is necessarily good. No, no. In fact, people's relationship to flags can be deeply emotional. And there, there are two major reasons why people will stick with a design that, that may be not a very successful design, but they're, they're passionate about it. One is uh, propriety. It's, it's my own flag. Nobody else has this flag. I have a specific relationship to this flag. This flag is of my country. The other is familiarity. I've grown up looking at this flag. This flag is what I see every time I look at a flag. I'm used to seeing it. And therefore the psychological uh, syndrome of the mere exposure effect kicks in and says, I'm used to it, so I like looking at it, so it looks good to me. So those two things, uh, uh, feeling that it's my own personal flag, I have a personal connection to it, and I'm used to seeing it, leads to folks continuing to embrace designs that, that might be more successful if they were simplified or upgraded. Ted Kay is the editor emeritus of Raven, a journal of vexillology and secretary of the North American Vexillogical Association. And he joins us every so often and thankfully just now on Vexillology Corner. Ted, thanks so much. Thanks for having me here, Mike. Look forward to the next time. Now the spiel. Over the weekend, CNN ran a story. Black people are more likely to die from heat stress than white people in New York City, report says. It was prominent on the homepage of CNN. It was a top five story on the CNN app. The at CNN Weather Center tweeted it to its 1.9 million followers. It got picked up by many advocacy organizations, mostly climate related, some social advocacy. And that headline that I just read you, it is true. Also true, the opening graph. I'll read it to you. There are hundreds of heat-related deaths in New York City each summer, but the rate at which black people die is twice as high compared to other racial and ethnic groups, the city's health department said. Which would lead even a careful reader to conclude that of the hundreds of heat-related deaths in the city, black people are dying at twice the rates of members of other ethnic groups. In fact, when I just said that to you, you probably said, yeah, you're just restating the first graph. I am not. It's tricky, but here is why. The key is the elision between heat-related deaths and heat-stress deaths. Heat-related deaths, which New York City also refers to as heat-exacerbated deaths, just means heat played a role, and that does befall hundreds of New Yorkers a year. It is not noted on death certificates. It's calculated retroactively using statistical estimation methods to determine excess deaths. 
The CDC uses different terms and different numbers, but they talk about deaths in which heat was an underlying cause and that in which it is a contributing cause. Each year in New York City, there are many people who have many underlying conditions and almost never have central air conditioning who die and heat plays a role in their death. Statistical researchers figure out after the fact. For them and those who are affected by almost all societal ills, there is a correlation to poverty. And since poverty has a clear and unmistakable racial dimension, poor African-Americans do suffer from heat-related deaths more than whites. But we don't know how much, and it's almost certainly not twice as often. So where do they get that twice as often fact? It is the heat stress deaths. That's New York City's term, where the double the rate statistic comes into play. And that's the rate, double the rate. Here are now the actual numbers. The last year for which they kept the stats of heat stress deaths in New York, five people total died. Going back to 2011, which New York City does in calculating its stats, there have been a total of 96 heat stress deaths, with more than half occurring in the years 2011 and 2013 combined. In the last seven years, there have been a total of 30 heat stress deaths. It's an average of four and a half a year. Annually, the average number of white people dying from the heat, directly from the heat, the heat stress deaths, as per CNN's headline, every year, two. Hispanic people, two. Black people, four. If the deaths were evenly distributed according to race, those numbers would be three, three, and three. Not quite one, statistically speaking, Asian-American person comes to heat stress deaths. It's also interesting that in New York City, the Hispanic population, the black population are roughly uh, the same in terms of numbers. The Hispanic population doesn't suffer heat stress deaths any more than the white population. Interesting, don't know what it means. I think what it generally means is that these numbers annually, even over a decade, are so small that even minor variations can show up as big statistical swings. Heat-related deaths can be ameliorated by a program that New York City has undergone to get more air conditioning into homes, or at least into communities, but also specifically into homes. The city funds this program. It executes this program. It seems to be working. Like I said, there was a cluster of deaths a decade ago, and since then there have been relatively few. The city's report on heat stress deaths says, quote, inequities in community-level heat impacts stem from Structural racism, which leads to neighborhood disinvestment, racist housing policy, fewer job opportunities, and lower pay. I'm not disagreeing with that, but I'm saying the solution to this acute problem is air conditioning. Just like another actual problem that I've talked about, maternal mortality disproportionately affecting black mothers, that can be solved via monitoring blood loss. It's not quite that simple. There are some other things that go into it, but I've talked about this a couple times in the past. California enacted big, sweeping, empirical reforms. They measure the blood instead of just eyeballing it. And this brought African-American maternal and infant mortality down to the levels that white, Hispanic, and Asian mothers experience in the rest of the country. I am not saying that structural racism doesn't exist. I am not saying root causes aren't important to study and consider and solve for. But in so many, many of our specific identifiable problems, the solutions need to embrace, identify who is suffering and alleviate the cause of their suffering. The modern definition of racism, on the other hand, is highly contested. We can't even agree 
on what that word means. Even fair-minded people cannot agree on what that word means. People who are against racism. The definition of air conditioning is not highly contested. Furthermore, the framing of this as an issue of race and racism, not untrue, but air conditioning saves lives. That is very, very true. And monitoring blood loss saves lives and grants to families with children in poverty saves lives. And that's the proper framing for considering this question and what the problem really is. You have a targeted solution, you have necessary funding, you have the service providers subject to accountability. That's the formula I understand and a formula that works for actually addressing many of our problems. Understanding the underlying dynamics, it's possibly useful, it's quite often interesting, it can spark different ideas or depths of knowledge, but just as often, it seems to me not to be the best course for delivering the most goods to the people who need those goods the most. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. Everyone in the neighborhood knows her as Lady Michelle. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. 